Hello and welcome to another episode. I've decided to turn Facts That Aren't True into a book. After making all the short videos about it, I started to realize that a lot of the claims I wanted to know more about them, and it was hard to do them justice and answer them properly in a short video. So I thought, why don't I just turn this into a book? I have about a hundred facts that aren't true I can write about and learn about. So I've started doing that. What I'm going to do with the podcast is every week I'm going to give you between one and three facts that aren't true from the book. So consider this your early access. Let's get started. Preface. How can a fact not be true? At a fundamental level, facts are statements or assertions about the world that can be verified as true or false based on evidence or reality. Facts are objective and not influenced by emotions, interpretations, or personal feelings. They stand in contrast to opinions based on personal feelings, tastes, or interpretations. We don't invent facts. We discover them. It's no secret that things historically regarded as facts, often for logical reasons, turned out not to be true. There have also been claims that nobody ever bothered to check for their validity, but they became so widespread that they became accepted as facts. These are called factoids. These two cases are the facts I'm talking about. It's fair to argue that these never were facts to begin with, but if we admit that we could be wrong about anything, Calling anything a fact begins to sound intellectually dishonest. Despite the inevitability that some of what we claim to know today will be proven wrong in the future, I'm not willing to stop calling those claims facts. I would also argue a spectrum of truth exists even within facts. This is just my personal view, but I regard factual and fact as different. For instance, the widely accepted statement, the sun orbits the earth. While true at a glance, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Earth and the sun orbit what's called a barycenter. Picture a rigid bar with two unequal weights on either side. There is a point somewhere along that bar where those two objects balance. Likewise, two objects in space will orbit around a central point that is in a location identical to a balancing point if they were stationary objects balanced on a rigid bar. That point is the barycenter. The statement the Earth orbits the Sun, is a true declarative statement, but it invites the counter-response, well, that's not entirely true. I believe most of us accept that not entirely true is not the same thing as false. With this understanding of the nuances of factual statements in mind, what is an example of a fact on the farthest end of the truth spectrum? I regard brute facts as pure facts that cannot be further qualified. The statement, the universe exists, could be considered a brute fact. The purpose of this book is not to usher in a paradigm shift in epistemology or metaphysics. 10,000 years from now, philosophers will still be arguing about what constitutes truth and real facts. The purpose of this book is to educate you. Some of the untrue facts in this book are partially true and therefore fall on the truth spectrum. The goal is to adjust them and push them further towards truth. Other untrue facts are just flat out wrong and need to be corrected. We all know many untrue facts from old wives tales to urban legends. Having been a teacher for nearly a decade and a person who makes educational videos for fun, I've come across a lot of misconceptions. 
This book started off as an idea I had to make a series of short educational videos on social media. The more of these videos I created, the more I realized the solutions to facts that aren't true are too complex for short videos. It also became apparent that many are relevant and have implications for things outside of the claims themselves. I became dissatisfied that my videos didn't do the answers justice. To give each untrue fact and the explanation to it the level of detail they deserve, I wrote this book. I tried to pick untrue facts that are, at least in my estimation, not rejected by the vast majority of people. For example, the Loch Ness Monster does not appear anywhere in this book because I don't think it's worth mentioning. Enjoy! Part 1. The Human Body We only use 10% of our brain. Sometimes a claim has a convoluted history. Perhaps a book that references a quote that itself references a study that is from a different book that was written in a different language and then mistranslated leads us to the original claim that, like in a game of telephone, becomes distorted or changes completely. But the myth about using only 10% of the brain doesn't appear to have a singular origin. No book or paper made the claim until it had already become a viral factoid. So why did people start saying it to begin with? There seems to be a loose association with William James, an American psychologist who wrote, We are making use of only a small part of our possible mental physical resources. It's common for people to hear something vague and spread their version of what it means. This is no different than how a high school rumor begins. Arguably, those who perpetuate the myth that we only use 10% of our brain the most are psychic gurus and charlatans trying to make money. Many of them pitch their sale by telling you we only consciously use 10% of our brain, but they know how to unlock the rest of that untapped potential. Therein lies one of the major problems with this claim. It's vagueness. Does it mean 90% of our brain is useless? Does it mean you can only access 10% of the brain at a time? Does it mean only 10% of the brain is active at any time? Despite the lack of clarity, these more specific claims are also disprovable. Do we literally only use 10% of the tissue in our brain? Obviously not. Using fMRI techniques, scientists have seen that no part of the brain is ever inactive. An fMRI is tuned to detect minute changes in blood flow in the brain. This shows that, rather than a constant stream of blood, oxygen, and nutrients, different parts of the brain increase their quote-unquote consumption when regions associated with certain activities are stimulated. Simple tasks, such as breathing, don't stimulate the entire brain, but most of our conscious, deliberate actions do. Although the brain only makes up around 3% of our body's mass, it consumes a whopping 20% of our daily calories. This is true even when we are asleep. Studies on patients with brain damage reveal that damage to various parts of the brain results in wildly different effects. If we only use 10% of the brain, damage to the other 90% should have little or no effect. Remarkably, you can get by with not much of a brain. I remember reading Ripley's Believed or Not as a child and learning about Mike the chicken who lived without a head. The story goes that the Olson family, who were farmers, took the chicken out to behead him for dinner. It's common for chickens to flail around for a bit after being decapitated, but Mike did more than that. Mike lived for 18 months and traveled the country with the Olsons as a sideshow attraction. 
Mike survived because his brainstem was saved from being detached from the rest of his body. The brainstem contains our life support network and regulates breathing, digestion, heart rate, and more. Because Mike had no head, he had to be manually fed, hydrated, and maintained. Mike could breathe but not swallow. Mike died due to mucus buildup in his airway that could not be removed. There have been human cases that almost defy explanation. A woman in China had her head scanned only to reveal that she did not have a cerebellum. The cerebellum's primary role is in motor control. You would think a person without a cerebellum would have no motor control, but this woman displayed no symptoms. In 2007, a French man appeared to be missing 90% of his brain. Scans revealed a skull filled almost entirely with fluid and a minuscule shell of a brain around the edges. The man did have a below average IQ, but was a high functioning adult and father. More recent studies suggest that what really happened is as fluid in his skull slowly accumulated, it squashed his brain against the inner skull. The brain is remarkably soft, with a consistency like jello after you've swished it between your teeth. Admit it, you've done it, we've all done it. This man probably has the same number of neurons as a typical adult, so he's not really missing anything. In some extreme cases of epilepsy, an entire hemisphere of the brain is purposely removed. Despite having half a brain, people who have undergone a hemispherectomy also live normal lives. This is due to what people who study the brain refer to as its plasticity, the ability to change and adapt. Different brain regions can compensate for damaged or missing regions. While this may seem to support the idea that we only use 10% of our brain, I think it shows a high degree of interconnectedness in the brain. If some functions in the brain were entirely localized to certain regions, you could never regain their function if those regions were lost or damaged. The most famous brain-damaged person who ever lived is probably Phineas Gage. Despite how well-known his story is, so much of what you hear about him is false. Gage is a construction foreman working for a railroad. While trying to stuff a hole in the ground with gunpowder using a metal rod, Gage inadvertently created a spark that ignited the gunpowder. This launched the three and a half foot rod through his skull. The story goes that, having much of his frontal lobe destroyed, Gage permanently lost all inhibitions and acted more animal than man. While there are some documented cases of Gage's behavior changing following his accident, none of the more damning claims have ever been corroborated. They almost all appear to be hearsay. Gage left his native New England and moved to Chile in 1852 following a gold rush. Someone who was as sorry as a case as Gage was reported to be could hardly have managed such a life change. Gage lived nearly 12 years after his accident, having died after several violent seizures in one night, almost certainly connected to his accident. What about the claim that we only use 10% of our brain at a time? I don't know where the 10% comes from, because I cannot fathom how anybody would quantify it. What does it even mean? Am I consciously aware of only 10% of what my brain does? Can we only retrieve 10% of our brain's stored information? Some people have a condition called hyperthymesia. They recall with extraordinary detail almost everything that's ever happened in their lives. Presumably, we all have this same information in our brains, but we cannot access it to the degree that they can. 
But if this is what people mean when they say we only use 10% of our brain, then it's obvious that the typical person doesn't use anywhere close to even 1% of their brain, let alone 10%. In the end, while not all of the brain may be active to the same degree at any moment, it's clear that we use the entire brain throughout the day. Activities in the brain don't solely take place in a small region, while 90% of it goes unused. Instead, neuroscience supports the idea that almost all mental tasks involve more than 10% of the brain. Cracking knuckles causes arthritis. First of all, why do knuckles crack? The leading idea is that cracking is caused from tiny air bubbles that pop. There is synovial fluid in our joints, and when you flex a joint, you stretch that fluid. This causes small bubbles of trapped gas within the fluid to burst. New bubbles take time to form, so you can't immediately crack the joint again. Some cracking sounds may be due to ligaments and tendons sliding over bones, which may be the case for joints that crack every time you move. I'm sure some of you have these. I, for example, have it in my left wrist. However, there's no connection between knuckle cracking causing arthritis. So what does cause arthritis? Osteoarthritis, the most common variety, is caused by the wear and tear of the joint due to overuse. By joint, I mean the cartilage and bones that make up the joint. Because knuckle cracking involves air bubbles in the fluid within a joint, there's no wear and tear on the joint tissue itself. The most common cause of osteoarthritis includes repetitive motions, injury, aging, and joints that don't align properly. Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune condition where the body's own immune system attacks healthy tissue. The reason this happens is unknown, but the disease's progression is well understood. The immune system attacks the inner lining of the cavity that holds the joint fluid, called the synovium. This leads to chronic inflammation and thickening of the synovium, which pushes against the joint tissue, destroying the cartilage and bone. Inflammation continues to form, leading to distorted joints symptomatic of rheumatoid arthritis. Another relatively common form of arthritis is gout. Gout is caused by a buildup of urate, a material our cells produce as a waste product of making organic molecules such as purines. Urate forms sharp crystals, which can also become kidney stones, but urate can also accumulate in joints if the body produces or consumes too much. Gout isn't curable, but it is treatable with dietary changes and some medications. While cracking your knuckles won't give you arthritis, it can be harmful. The risks include ligament damage and joint dislocation. Personally, I don't know anyone who has harmed themselves cracking a joint. One thing I would caution against, though, is letting someone crack your neck or your back for you. It just seems like a terrible idea. Speaking of which, do chiropractors ever seriously injure anybody? This thought began as an attempt to discover if you really can instantly kill someone with a neck twist, which I gave up on after finding little data. But chiropractors do a mild version of what you see in the movies all the time. A study I read found that among a cohort aged 66 to 99, the rate of injury from chiropractic care, specifically for spinal manipulation, was 40 out of every 100,000 patients. Considering their advanced age and that the injury rate from primary care is actually four times higher, I think it's safe to say that getting your neck cracked by a trained professional carries little extreme risk. 
Some people are double-jointed. Double-jointed is a term frequently used to describe individuals who seem to have a greater range of flexibility in their joints than others. It evokes an image of somebody having an extra joint, or twice the typical number of joints, allowing them to perform astonishing feats of flexibility. In reality, there's no such thing as a double joint. What many people label as double-jointedness is, in scientific terms, joint hypermobility. Joint hypermobility means that some of the joints in a person's body can move beyond the normal range of motion. This is often due to genetic variations that affect collagen, the protein that lends strength and elasticity to connective tissues. I have known several people with not just extreme flexibility, but joints that extend far beyond the normal range. I had a friend in college who, if she sat on the floor and flexed her quads, her knee would hyperextend to the point where her heels would be a good six inches off the ground. I've also had students who, when they extend their fingers all the way, look like they could grip a basketball with the back of their hand. I, meanwhile, am the least flexible person I know. I think I was born with short tendons because it's really pathetic what I cannot do. For example, it's physically impossible for me to form a right angle with my legs and my back. I don't mean I can't bend over, but if I sit on the floor, it's not possible for my lower back to touch the wall. When I wake up in the mornings, sitting on the couch and looking down makes my entire back ache as the muscles are being pulled. People always tell me you can change this, but I was a serious athlete in college for four years and stretched vigorously every day and nothing changed. Maybe it works for some people, but it had no effect on me. Some extreme joint flexibility is a result of congenital disorders. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a condition that affects the connective tissue of the body. Connective tissue is found throughout the body, not just in the joints. In fact, blood is classified as a connective tissue. Typically, we think of connective tissue as being a stretchy kind of material, such as collagen. People with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome experience symptoms in a range of areas, not just the joints. On the mild end, it can cause their skin to be extremely stretchy. On the more severe end, it can make blood vessels, which contain a lot of connective tissue, to become weak and rupture easily from internal pressure. Other disorders that affect tissues include Marfan syndrome and Down syndrome. Individuals with Marfan syndrome are often quite tall. Isaiah Austin, a standout college basketball player who attended Baylor, stands over seven feet tall. Tragically, his dream of entering the NBA was cut short after he learned he had Marfan syndrome, and the risk of a severe health event was too great. It is widely believed that Abraham Lincoln also had Marfan syndrome. That does it for this installment. Like I said, I'll give you weekly updates on these, and uh, we'll learn about facts that aren't true together. Thanks for listening.